Hello and welcome to Macro Bytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Deputy Chief Economist here at Aberdeen. And today we're kicking off a series of episodes leading up to and during COP26, in which we'll be talking to our economists, investors, policymaker contacts about the macroeconomic, political and investment implications of climate change. And today we're going to focus specifically on the role of the judicial system, the courts and central banks in climate policy and the profound impact that climate litigation and central bank action has on investment markets. So joining me in this discussion are Anna Moss, climate change scenario analyst here at Aberdeen, and Luke Bartholomew, familiar voice on the podcast, a co-host and our senior monetary economist. And as always, there is a lot to discuss, so let's get straight into it. So Anna, you've been thinking about writing about climate change litigation for the uninitiated. Could you just give us a very quick sort of cliff notes of what climate litigation actually is. Why are we talking about this? Thank you. Yes. So we've seen um, a really steep increase uh, in the, the amount of climate related litigation that's being brought to the to the courts. Um, so this is um, in general litigation that is brought that's trying to strengthen climate policy or take action um, against uh, those who are seen as uh, the climate villains, if you like, so they're the large emitting companies, for example. Um, but you also see climate change litigation in the other direction as well. So in terms of uh, companies, for example, that might challenge um, strengthening of climate policy where it is um, interrupting their, their activities, limiting their activities, for example. So we've seen this really steep increase, as I say, since really about 2006. And why, why Anna, is that um, a rising trend over time? Why is climate litigation on the increase? Well, some of the leaps that we've seen in, um, in the number of cases being brought have been triggered really by some of the, the major international agreements, so the Kyoto Protocol, for example, or the Paris Agreement, um, both of those were followed by large leaps in in litigation. And um, whilst the the vast majority of these cases continue to emanate within the US, so the US dominates in terms of litigation, but we are also seeing an increase in important cases being brought to courts elsewhere, so particularly in Europe and Australia, for example, and in those courts, actually, you're proportionately more likely to see ruling in favour of those that are clam- championing climate action than you rule in the US currently. Great. And we're, so we're talking about this, of course, in the lead up to COP26, around which we might also expect a further ramping up in climate litigation, just as happened um after those those previous uh, large set piece conferences what about the role then of improving science and the ability to identify and um, assign climate blame and costs has that also had a role here in, in in the trend increase in climate litigation yes this is really critical so as well as seeing um leaps in relation to um, specific uh, agreements. You also see a relationship with the publication of major scientific evidence. And in August, for example, um, so we saw the publication there of the physical science report of the IPCC's sixth assessment. 
And the urgency of the message in that new report and the strength of the science and language that the report uses is very likely to trigger an increase in litigation, as well as strengthening those cases, um, those cases themselves. So we could very well see an increase in the success of litigation. The common barrier to litigation success is the ability to establish the link between cause and effect. Um, however, that report highlights the increased ability to attribute specific extreme events to human-induced climate change. And that allows those experiencing loss and damage to bring cases against those governments and companies deemed responsible for that climate change due to their relative emission levels, for example. So let's dig in then a little bit more into the parties involved in climate litigation. So you've touched on it, Anna, but, but tell us who are the people, the organisations bringing these cases and who are they being brought against? What are the sort of common groupings there? Yes, yeah, so some of the, the trends we're really seeing. So whilst cases against governments and government departments continue to dominate, um, so they're really around the kind of strengthening of, of policy, for example, um, we're also seeing interesting trends in the nature of some of those cases. So you're seeing a rise in the use of human rights arguments, for example, such as the successful case that was brought against the, the Dutch government that forced them to strengthen their emission reduction targets. You're definitely seeing a rise in litigation by activists and, and advocacy groups. So they're seeing the courts um, as a very useful way to um, raise to not only um, have the chance of successful litigation, but also the positive um, um, publicity that can be brought from such cases, even if they're not successful. And you're also seeing um, a diverse, diversification of strategies used against corporations. So um, you're seeing cases that uh, are forcing compliance with non-financial disclosure regulations, for example. Charges of greenwashing are becoming very common. So companies are at risk of becoming targets if their statements uh, are deemed to be misleading, such as um, there was a successful case brought against BP. And shareholder activism, which is putting pressure on the boardrooms. So you're seeing a big increase in the number of, of climate resolutions going to the vote of financial company um, annual general meetings, um, as, as well as kind of the litigation um, actions that you're seeing. So to what extent is there this pushback by um, some of the typical defendants in these cases who are in turn bringing climate litigation for, say, lost earnings or overly strict regulation against government. Is that also a trend in, in climate litigation? It is. It definitely is a trend. But I think we're likely to see a, a kind of a, a downturn in that trend, given the, the reputational risk to those companies that accompanies them challenging um, strengthening of climate policy by governments or local government, for example. Great. So then let's end this section then by just making this really explicit in terms of what it means for investors. So how does this impact you know, the, the investment opportunity in individual companies and how do investors have to incorporate the rise in climate litigation into their investment decision making? Yeah, so we're seeing um, currently seeing not very much um, litigation brought directly against the financial se uh, sector, and there's been little success on that due largely to the inability to 
prove that activities would have halted if the finance was was withdrawn, for example. Um, but as with corporations, um, the financial sector is definitely open to accusations of greenwashing and lack of disclosure. And I think we're likely to start to see challenges there. Um, but also in terms of the, the financial impacts for investors, the risk there is really this kind of indirect risk from investing in companies that are facing litigation um, and the reputational risk from investing in major emitting companies. So I suppose the bottom line is you you have to do your your ESG homework. You have to do, do your due diligence, your screening, because, partly because of this trend of, of, of climate litigation and the legal risks that 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 you, you that are embodied in in that trend. Absolutely, I don't think the the financial sector is going to be able to to sit um, at at as much distance as it's been able to in terms of of these these court cases. Brilliant. So, Luke, we're going to get on then to thinking about central banks' role in climate policy as well and how that impacts in investors. And central banks are increasingly involved in climate policy. The ECB, the European Central Bank, is probably the leader here. Um, what have they said? What have they done in terms of the involvement of, of a major central bank in climate policy? Yeah, thanks, Paul. And I think it is fair to say that the ECB probably has been the leader here, both rhetorically and also in substance. President Lagarde has talked about how she wants the ECB to be the paysetter in this regard. Um, and indeed, I think that was quite a big part of her pitch for the job back when she was going for it 18 months, two years ago. Um, so in terms of what they've done, well, the ECB had a big strategic review that concluded uh, earlier this year around July time when it was looking at um, a whole suite of issues around how it conducted policy. And a big part of that is that they also released their climate action plan as part of that strategic review. So set up climate policy as a key component of the way in which it felt it needed to tackle the issues of the future. And that climate action plan sort of, at least in the short term, doesn't involve a huge amount of changes. They're mostly spending the next year or so collecting better data, building up expertise, and then sort of enforcing stronger disclosure requirements on companies. But come 2022, that activity there starts to increase somewhat. Um, at that point, they intend to introduce climate stress tests as part of their standard um, stress tests for financial institutions uh, to apply differential haircuts collateral posted by banks and various counterparties, depending on the results of those stress tests and other sort of environmental climate-based assessments. And third of all, and I guess this is the one that gets most attention, is so-called green QE. So to explicitly direct uh, the purchases as part of their corporate purchase program towards companies um, that on the basis of their disclosures are more green. So VC is unambiguously the leader uh, when it comes to central bank involvement in climate policy. But what have other major central banks been saying on this? And I'm thinking in particular about the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, perhaps even the US Federal Reserve. Sure. So there's bits of progress uh, from all of them. Uh, from the Bank of Japan, we've seen they're introducing this subsidized lending program for companies that are more involved in the green transition. So helping to increase their access to finance and to cheap finance explicitly. Uh, the Bank of England uh, has had its mandate 
from Parliament updated to include um, climate related issues. And I think ultimately what that's going to amount to when it's operationalized is green QE. So again, skewing its corporate sector asset purchases towards those companies that meet whatever green criteria. From the Fed, I think it is fair to say that that is something of a laggard. Uh, there has been work they have done in terms of increasing uh, the modelling work they do about the impact of climate change on the economy and the sort of talk from power that there might be sort of more moral suasion and regulatory pressure brought to bear uh, on certain financial institutions in the way that they finance certain uh, non-green behaviour. But as I said, I think the Fed is going to remain a lagger and there are pretty good structural reasons for that the first is that the fed actually in some ways has a more restrictive mandate than those other central banks that it very um tightly pins them into what uh, to achieving full employment and stable inflation there isn't the kind of uh what the ecb has as their secondary mandate to support the other projects of the eu or indeed other central banks sort of have Sort of soft secondary mandates to ensure that they are supportive of policy. The Fed doesn't really have anything like that, which sort of speaks to the, the, the potentially slightly deeper structural issue in the US, which is that climate policy is just profoundly more political in the partisan sense of the word than it is elsewhere. And for a technocratic institution like a central bank to pursue certain policies, it's extremely important as part of their democratic legitimacy to have buy-in across the political spectrum. There's a sense in which there's full political support in what they're doing. And that sort of just isn't there with the Fed at the moment. And indeed, we're sort of seeing that to some extent around questions of Powell's reappointment. And um, one of the big issues of contention is whether um, certain members of Congress would like to go with a leader, a new leader of the Fed who would be more inclined to support green issues. And these kind of sort of politicization of uh, climate policy do make it harder for the, the Fed to, to pursue anything until there is a settled political mandate, which I suppose quite nicely illustrates the point that central bank behavior in this regard can't be thought of as a substitute to substantive political solutions. It is part of uh, a political solution, not a substitute to it. Yeah, so let's spend some time then thinking about the justification for central banks doing things like green QE or or hair, differential haircuts on green versus brown bonds. And it's not as naive a question as it perhaps might strike some people in the first instance, precisely because, as you said, Luke, central banks are technocratic organizations that operate under strict mandates and rule, rules. They're not directly elected. They're not directly accountable to, to the public. So what are the different justifications that are being given for central banks to become, over time, increasingly involved in climate policy? Yeah, so well, given the mandate for almost all central banks is some form of price level inflation stabilisation, you might think that an obvious route that you could go down to try and justify um, climate-based policy would be to justify in terms of price stability and inflation stabilisation. And it is um, ambiguously the case that green transition and climate change more generally will have implications not just for relative prices, but I suspect also for inflation rates at times as well. The big shifts in relative prices that will be required as certain energy sources become 
much more expensive, will I expect sort of show up as periods of higher inflation? So you might think that that's, that's a justification there. I'm not so convinced about that for several reasons. First of all, central banks already have pretty well articulated frameworks for thinking about energy price shocks and how they behave with regards to energy price shocks in accordance to their current mandates without sort of needing to give any extra baggage to climate policy. Uh, and second, the sort of horizons that those price changes, that those inflationary pressures are going to be over are likely to be much longer than the sort of standard central bank time horizon when it's targeting inflation stabilization over a two, three year horizon, at which point it's really just the standard business cycle dynamics that are likely to dominate. So as appealing as that sort of inflation route seems, I, I'm not sure that it is actually that, that powerful when you think about it. I think a slightly more powerful justification is that uh, another big role for central banks is not just stabilizing the price level and inflation, but also the financial system more generally. And it does seem extremely likely that, again, the green transition climate policy does potentially pose systemic risks for the kind of institutions that central banks regulate, the financial system, the way in which it's invested in certain companies whose assets might be rendered significantly less valuable depending on certain policies or insurance companies that suddenly face significantly high catastrophe risk as a consequence of climate change. And so the thought is that part of their role as a financial stability regulator involves them having to take views and set policy on the basis of climate considerations. And I think that is a somewhat stronger argument, although it does rely on the idea that you know, fundamentally, the central bank knows better how to price and regulate these kind of risks than the market does. And that might not be an implausible assumption, at least at the moment, while the degree of information disclosure perhaps isn't strong enough for markets to correctly price all risks. But that may not always be true in time. And indeed, a large part of what central banks are trying to do is increase disclosure so markets can price this activity better. So it's quite a contingent kind of justification, which sort of in some sense, hopefully is not always true. You, you would hope that markets would be better able to account for those risks and price them accordingly at some point in the future. And so what we think of as really being the strongest argument is just the pretty direct case that, look, climate change is an existential risk that at times where societies face existential risks, it's extremely important that all institutions that can make a difference do make a difference. This is exactly how central banks behave, for example, during wartime, where other considerations are put to one side and the central banks involved in financing governments. I think that the analogy uh, fits well here, that the kind of risks that are at stake are such that it is appropriate for the central bank to be involved because of that. And sort of a standard objection you get to that is it violates this principle of neutrality that the central bank shouldn't be involved in favoring one sector over another. And we're rather unconvinced by that case, at least in when it comes to climate policy, because what well, a neutrality is pretty much impossible to achieve anyway. And so once you've accepted um, that that is the case, you sort of brought to point B, which is, well, we might as well ask what ways do we want to be non-neutral, accepting that neutrality is impossible, and what better way to be non-neutral than to, you know, <laughs> help deal with the greatest risks that humanity is facing.
Brilliant. So same final question to you um, as to Anna then. Let's make explicit how this matters for investors. So so what does all this central bank action on climate policy in the end mean for asset markets and investors in financial markets? So I think in the short term, uh, central banks are going to be responsible for sort of pushing us towards a situation where corporates are forced to disclose much more information through moral suasion, regulatory pressure, sort of setting certain standards around what's required to be involved in asset purchase programs. All of this will force corporates to disclose more. And so that means more information for investors to be able to assess the kind of risks that companies are facing given transition and, and climate risks. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the the responsibility on investors to take on that information and price assets accordingly. And then the other is that it's just very likely that the central bank action green QE setting different collateral requirements will lead to a sustained shift in relative prices for green assets versus brown assets, to put it simply. And, you know, there are sort of, depending how furiously you take the efficient market hypothesis reasons for thinking that effect shouldn't be so big. You know, if, if you take the view that the only thing that matters for pricing an asset is its cash flows, it shouldn't matter who, who owns it, whether it's the central bank or, or the private sector, or else it might be the fundamentals pin down the price. But I think that's a rather too literal reading of uh, the efficient market hypothesis, at least in this case. I think there are good reasons for thinking central bank action does have sustained causal impact on prices. First of all, there are frictions in markets that mean the impact of central bank purchases persist. And second, because there is important signaling that comes with the central bank buying these kind of assets and not buying those kind of assets, they tell you something about the way in which the state and regulation more generally is shifting towards those kind of behaviours. And that is information that is important for investors when they come to pricing assets. So it is the case that already there was sort of this drift towards uh, a sustained wedge between the pricing structure of green and brown assets. The private sector was doing that work already, but I think central bank action will sort of accelerate and reinforce those existing trends. Brilliant. Luke, Anna, thank you both very much. It's a really useful overview of how climate litigation central bank involvement in climate policy really matters for for macro economy and for investment markets and thank you for listening to macro bites please tune in for further episodes as we build up to cop 26 thinking through the macro market implications of climate policy and climate change don't forget to give Macrobytes a like or subscribe on your podcast platform. But until next time, goodbye and good luck out there. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. 
The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.